opportunity that we have to meet with other believers and to look at your word. Open our eyes. I pray that we receive more, more and more of your in your word. And I pray that you'll conform us and transform us into your image. And that you'll be glorified in our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what was the issue that needed to be resolved at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15? It's an issue that's still with us today. What issue needed to be resolved at the Council of Jerusalem? What constitutes salvation? Okay, and what were the basic choices? Circumcision. Okay. Or maybe we could say Christ alone or Christ plus. In that case, it's circumcision and following the law of Moses, but there's other variations. But the bottom line is, is it Christ alone or is it Christ plus something we have to do to be accepted by God fully? So what book in the New Testament corrects the idea that it's faith in Christ plus works brings about salvation? What book or books is addressing that mistake? Galatians, James. Let's Galatians and Romans for sure. And then the book that addresses the idea it's faith minus works would be James. <clears throat> And then a passage that shows its faith in Christ yields salvation and works would be what? Ephesians. Ephesians. So specifically Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace you've been saved through faith that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. So... Salvation is not by works, it's unto works. It yields works, but it's not on the front end of getting salvation. It's a fruit of that relationship with God. So any questions or comments on that? Because that is just as big as it gets. Is it Christ alone or Christ plus something else? Any questions or comments on that? Okay. Well, then in 16, how did Paul and Barnabas end up in Macedonia? Was that where they thought they were going to go? Right, so they thought they were going to Asia... The Holy Spirit blocked that. They thought they were going to Bithynia. The Spirit blocked that. You see a vision, go to Macedonia. So instead of going east toward Asia, they go west into Europe. Um, how did Lydia and the rest of us come to know Christ? What's the phrase? Lord opened her heart. And that's true for all of us, right? We can't open our own hearts. An evangelist or a preacher can't open our hearts. Only the Lord can open a closed heart. And then how might the Philippian jailer have shared his testimony? Well, 
That mean you want to answer that one, Lois? No, no, no. It's not like a game show. Just a little beeper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So when it comes to question on Acts 16, right, let's start 17, uh, let's let me read the first three verses. Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Okay, thank you. So Paul's back in the synagogue, remember, he couldn't go to the synagogue in Philippi because there wasn't one, there wasn't enough Jewish population to have one but in Thessalonica there is so that's where he starts and uh, what's his basic message? Jesus' last name. It's a title. The promised Messiah that they've been Very good. Very good. So God's promised king or deliverer who would reign forever. So that's his basic message. We'll see how that went over in 4 through 9. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Okay, so what kind of reactions did Paul's message get going? These people are upsetting the world. Yeah. King James says that uh, they've turned the world upside down, which is a memorable (laughs) phrase. Which is sort of true. So what, what? So some are persuaded, but how do others take the message and run with it? And what, that's what seems to start the riot. They said he was trying to be a different king than Caesar. Okay. They're proclaiming another king, this King Jesus. So they recognize Jesus as king, 
they're just saying, well, only Caesar's supposed to be king, so that's the problem, and we can't let that happen. Weird thing is they were Jews, so you know that they don't believe that Caesar is truly the king. Right. And, of course, that happened at Jesus' trial as well. You know, they, oh, we have no king but Caesar. Yeah. So, so any questions on the visit to Thessalonica? So, obviously, First and Second Thessalonians are letters Paul addressed to these believers that did get persuaded. He was only there, as best as we can tell, three weeks. And he had to leave. So very minimal time with this baby church so he sends them two letters to help follow up and he mentions persecution a lot because they experienced that and saw that in Paul so let's see where Paul goes after that 10 through 12 brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Okay, thank you. So if you've been here more than a few months, you've probably heard the phrase, be a Berean. So, obviously, this is the verse we get that from. What are, what are we saying when we're encouraging people to do that, to be that? Compare the teaching you're hearing against Scripture to make sure Right. Right. So, if you hear something on the radio, read something on a blog, or hear something on a podcast, how does it line up with the Bible? If it lines up, accept it. If it's something's off, don't accept it. But compare everything with the scriptures, because that's truth, absolute truth. Everything else has to be compared to that. That's the measuring rod. Okay, any questions on that? <coughs> I have one. How can we encourage one another to be Bereans? Does that, I don't think we're born that way. Like automatically, that's our default. But, oh, I think I should check the scripture. So how can we encourage one another to be more like the Bereans? I think, for one thing, being around each other, being in fellowship with each other, um, asking questions and questioning, lovingly questioning others and dialoguing. Okay, good, good. Dave, there's hardly a conversation that you and I have that you don't ask me what I'm reading. That's good. I mean, it's, it's accountability. It puts... You know, thankfully, my heart, by grace, wants to be in God's Word. But having my brother, you know, care about, you know, whether I'm in the Word and God working in my heart by asking me that question, it's a big deal. So yeah, if we're not in the Word ourselves, it's pretty hard to be a Berean. <laughs> you know, if we're not familiar with what the Bible teaches, uh, then a lot of things will sound plausible. And the more familiar we are, of course, the more we'll readily see things that are out of sync. And, I mean, it's been used hundreds of times in hundreds of places, but, you know, treasury agents don't spend their time looking at counterfeit bills. They just spend their time 
handling and looking at real money, and then they get so used to that, then anything fake just just jumps out at them because they're so used to the real. So the more used we are to this, something that's off will will just trigger us very quickly. Any other thoughts on how we can encourage each other to be Bereans? Okay, Mark and then Anna. Um, if we're talking with somebody and they bring up uh, a concept, it's like, well, where do you find that in the Bible? Okay, okay. So we had a, a guy from Jews for Jesus come one time. His name was Myron, which sounds like a good Jewish name. And uh, at one point in the Sunday evening service, he said, I believe that every Jew will, God will reveal who Jesus really is to every Jew before he died. I said, Myron, where do you, I asked that question, Mark, where do you see that in the Bible? And he says, well, it's not in the Bible, I just... I mean, well, then I don't care. You know, if it's not in the Bible, don't say it. That's just bogus to make up something because that's what you'd like to be true. So, yeah, and, and it takes some chutzpah to ask that question if somebody's not in sync with what they're going to say from the Bible. Anna, what did you want to add? Uh, sharing each other's testimonies, like um, how like, you were about this story from the Bible and then you brought that, you know, like, uh, like going to like uh, going to um, advice in the Bible well not advice but like um, what God has shown in the Bible and how to act um, can to walk um, what the Bible says okay daily praying for them too I'm thinking of Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Being in his word is his pleasure. So asking God to do what only he can do. Right. I talked to somebody this week and asked, how are you doing on reading? And they hadn't <laughs> been doing so well. And I just... Again, gently reminded them of Psalm 1936. Incline my heart to your testimonies. You know, we can't come up with the one to ourselves. We have to ask God for it. We're dependent on God for everything, including a desire to read his word, a desire to be Bereans, a desire to do anything that's godly is going to come from God's grace and not our own willpower or good intentions. Okay, any other thoughts on Bereans? Always wondered why we use that phrase, and now that mystery is solved. Okay, let's keep going. 13 through 15, we'll see how things go after that. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Okay. 
So how far is it from Thessalonica to Berea? Anybody know? Just off the top of your head. 50 miles. So here's these Jews that were so upset, they started a riot in their town, and they get wind that Paul's 50 miles away in Berea. Let's go down and stir up trouble down there. So they make a 100-mile round trip just to cause trouble for Paul, and he leaves and goes to Athens. So this is, uh, that's how he gets to Athens. We'll see how things start um, with his visit there. Would somebody please read um, 16 to 21? was waiting for them in Athens. Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to, dis- began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus in the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Thank you. <laughs> Where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. <coughs> you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Okay, thank you. So it says Paul saw the city was full of idols. Any guesses on how many idols were in the city of Athens? Don't feel bad if you don't know this one. Um, It's estimated 30,000 that's a lot of idols. So, um, and Paul just noticed. He I think he would have been overwhelmed. Like he's falling <laughs> over him. He can't turn around without hitting one. So, um, Angela's sister, Allison, lived in Japan for a while. And on one of her Christmas letters to the family, she wrote this. How wonderful it is to know a living Savior And living here in Japan has made that even more wonderfully true to us. Everywhere you go, in every park, on many city street corners, are statues of Buddha. Big ones, little ones, Buddha in baby caps, Buddha in aprons, stone Buddhas and brass Buddhas, and people of flesh and blood with hearts of stone worshipping them. There's Buddhas everywhere. That's what Paul is seeing, just idols everywhere. And how does he react when he sees all these idols. So again, I think that's, that should strike us because I think our tendency is, well, they're sincere. They mean well. 
And, and that's not how Paul sees it. He's, he's upset. So this is from a book called A Vision for Mission by Tom Wells. If I am a God admirer, the indifference of the world to God's glory must wound me. It is robbery when people bow the knee to anything less than the Lord of heaven. They steal the renown that pertains to God. Can I bear to see them bestow it on their idols? Surely not. The glory of God's love and all that he else that he is belongs to God alone. So then love for God's character, including his grace and goodness, must move me. If I am grieved that men suppress the knowledge of God, I must respond. So Paul is there. <laughs> it's like, this honor belongs to God alone, not all these idols. I've got to say something. I've got to do something here. And so he starts talking in the marketplace to start with. And um, what kind of reactions is he getting um, in his first round? Where He'll go give a sermon on Mars Hill later. But while he's in the marketplace, he's, what kind of reactions does he get? Sort of some mocking. What is that blabberer saying? Yeah. Yeah, I'm an idle babbler. That, that's not a compliment. <laughs> it's interesting that they're saying that when they all they do is talk about new things. So if this is new to them, why are they not like interested? That's a fair question. But who says people are consistent? <laughs> okay, so Idle Babbler, um, some other people said what? He's preaching on foreign divinities or foreign gods. Okay, so new things, strange gods, strange teachings. And again, along with Emily's point, if they like new things, then they should be eating that up. But they're kind of complaining. Um, but some of them want to know more, and why do they want to know more? They just want to know. They want to know more about it because that's what they do. Yeah, because it's new. It's new. <laughs> not, like not is it true, but is it new? Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Kind of sounds like America. What's the latest? What's the current fad? What's true? That's new. And it's probably something that's in them that's saying there's something more too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because we're surrounded by these thousands them. of gods. Yeah. And we want more. <laughs> there's something more out there. Okay. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, let's go then to 22 to 25. So Areopagus is just a fancy Greek word for Mars Hill. Okay. So that's where Paul is going to preach. So we read 22 to 25. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining, examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does he not dwell or sorry. The God who made the world and all the all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Okay, thank you. So what are some truths about God that Paul teaches these Athenians and teaches us? He made the world and everything. Okay, good. <coughs> so the God he's proclaiming is the almighty creator of all things. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Who else is this God? sequence anyway. Lord. Lord. What's the word Lord mean? Master. Master, right. Undisputed owner and ruler with absolute authority to whom allegiance and obedience is due. That's Lord. He's Lord of heaven and earth, so he has authority over everything. So he created everything. He's Lord over everything. What do we need to know about where he dwells? Not in man-made temples. Okay, good. So let's look at a couple of verses for that. First Kings 8.27. First Kings 8.27. This is Solomon when he's building a temple for God. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Okay, thank you. Just interesting, in the week we're coming into Christmas, will God dwell on the earth, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So a temple can't contain him, and yet a body contains him in the incarnation. So that's something to think about. Or Acts 7, this is a quote from Isaiah 66, Acts 7, 48 and 49. God is going to be confined to a temple in Athens or a church building is to minimize that God is infinite or omnipresent. Um, God is also self-sufficient. What does God need us for? Bingo. Thank you. He is not served with human hands as if he needed anything. So let me give you a couple more quotes. This is from a leaflet that was put out by Calvary Chapel out in California. Um, and it says, this tells us something about God. God doesn't do things just for kids. He must have felt in some sense a need of being loved. 
Do you think it is fair to conclude that God needs us? I think so. So God apparently created the world because he needed us to love him. He's needy, and we're there to help him. And that's blasphemy. God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything or anybody. He's self-sufficient. Or here's one from um, A.W. Tozer. We commonly represent God as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. Too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. <laughs> Again, so that's just so out of sync with Acts 17. So these two quotes I just gave you are examples of be a Berean. If you hear somebody say, you know, God needed us to love him, well, that doesn't fit what the Bible says. Or we need to help God out. You know, God has this big help wanted sign for missionaries. No, God doesn't need help. He will get the mission done with us, without us, in spite of us. There will be a people gathered around the throne from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So don't feel sorry for God. God is not up in heaven going, oh, man, if I could just get people to cooperate. Okay. And yet, I mean, you just bump into that mentality all the time. And so be Bereans. You hear those kind of things? Let your antenna be up and go, no. Acts 17 says God doesn't need anything. Any comments or questions on that? <coughs> At first, jarring if you haven't read Acts 17 before. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought I was a big player here. And but no, you're not. Um, God doesn't need you. Okay, so what do we need God for, according to Acts 17? Okay, that's a good a comprehensive answer. Um, life. Are you alive? God gave you that. Breath. Everyone here is still breathing. Every breath you take, gift from God. And then, just to catch everything else, and all things. So everything, as Patrick just pointed out, is from God. God doesn't need us for anything. We need God for everything. And that's the right perspective on reality. Okay, any comments or questions on that? Okay, let's keep going. 26 through 29. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him, 
though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of you, your own poets, have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So, um, how many of you ever like traced your family tree or have some kind of record of a family tree? Okay, a few of us. Okay. So, if we were to trace our family tree, where would we all go back to? Abraham. A little farther back. Yeah. Okay. So it says, "From one man, he made every nation of mankind." So, Paul is affirming, like he does in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, a real historical Adam as the first man, the founder of the human race, and so that's where it all started. And then, who decides where we live and when we live there? Is it just our employers, or who's ultimately responsible for why we live here, for example? It's in verse 26. God. God determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That means where they live and where, when they live there. God did that. So it wasn't just, I like the weather better in this place or got a job opportunity in that place. It's God might use those factors, but he's ultimately the one who determines that. All right? Um... And again, notice the dependence. We are, uh, in him we live, we move. Let's move my arm. It's because of God. I can move. And exist. I, I stay in being because God upholds me. He sustains my existence. I'm not self-existing. I'm God-dependently existing. So any comments or questions on those verses? How do we balance verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him with um, we're all dead and there's none that seeketh after God? Great question. I was hoping somebody would bring that up. Actually, I wasn't hoping it, but I thought somebody might. <laughs> <laughs> Because Paul does say very clearly, Romans 3.12, no one seeks after God. Okay. The fact that nobody does it doesn't mean it's not, they're not responsible to do it. Okay. So all people are, the great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does the fact that nobody does it mean it's not right? Of course not. God is worthy to be sought even though nobody seeks him. You know, God is worthy of compliance with everything he says, even though we don't have the ability to do it. So, he's saying, seek the Lord, and you'll find him. And it, that's met with hearts that don't want to seek God and need grace, like Lydia and all of the rest of us, to open a heart so that there is a desire to seek and an ability to seek. So, um, a, a 
a requirement doesn't imply ability. It just implies responsibility. Like God says, seek me. I don't seek him. I'm guilty of failure to seek God, even though he told me to. So it just adds to my list of sins. Um, and I won't seek him unless God <clears throat> grants me that ability. Does that make sense? I might take a little while for it to sink in. Well, it, it's not the easiest concept. No, that's fair. Any other thoughts on... And again, he's saying this to pagan Greeks who have 30,000 idols in town, including one to an unknown god, because just want to cover our bases in case we miss somebody. And he's saying, seek God. He's not that far away. You know, he's not saying that in the synagogue to Jews that are well, he's kind of on the right track. They have the scriptures. He's saying these like total pagans. And says, if you seek him, you'll find him. But they won't. So, actually, that's not a bad transition to 30 to 34. So, would somebody read those verses? times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus, the, I'm going to attempt that word, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Thank you. So isn't it interesting that right after saying, seek God, he says, therefore having overlooked times of ignorance, God's declaring all men to repent. So you haven't sought God. You've been going away from God, so you need to turn come back to God. Um, and, and why is that urgent? Because you're going to be judged. Right. And it's in it. he's already fixed the day and he's already appointed the presiding judge. So this is locked in. It's already on God's calendar. This will happen. And the only way to be ready for it is to repent of this ignorance and failure to seek God and follow him, turn to him. Remember, um, the Thessalonians, remember how it says, how you turn from idols to serve true and living God. So that's repentance. They're serving 30,000 idols. Turn from that. Turn to the true and living God. That's what, even though it's not all packed in that, that's included in that. So, how, how does that message fly? Three reactions. They sneer. Okay, what does it mean to sneer? It's nonsense. Right. It's, it's a mocking, <coughs> it's a, a, a way of expressing contempt. Um, and what, what triggered that reaction? When they heard about the resurrection. The resurrection. They're, they weren't ready for that. How sincere are the people who say, yeah, we want to hear about this again? 
Some of them probably were. We don't know their part. Maybe they're just being polite. I would say the link between 32 and 33 says Paul didn't think they were sincere. So listen to this. We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. So he went out. It's like, if they were really sincere, don't you think Paul would have stayed around? But Luke puts it as a cause. They said it, and that's why he left. He could tell, that's just a joke. You don't really care about the truth I'm proclaiming. I, I'm not going to cast my pearls before swine just to entertain you with something new. But some did believe. So, Dionysus, the Areopagite. It really pops. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that. I would have tried, but I wasn't ready. <laughs> well, you think, okay, Paul was at the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, and Dionysus is somebody who was from there. He's an Areopagite. So, and a few other, uh, a woman named Damaris, and others. So, again, everywhere Paul goes, there's a mixed response, isn't there? There's a riot, and some believe. He gets run out of town, but some believe. He's mocked like he's a crazy man, but some believe. And that's just the way it still is now, isn't it? People hear the message in a church service or on the radio or other settings, and some just go, this isn't anything I care about, and some embrace it. Ultimately, God who has to work. So, any comments or questions on Acts 17? <coughs> I, I don't know what you're going to say about this. The footnotes have a lot about he quoted philosophers. Oh. And I don't know how much that means, other than he just was someone's school, is what I've understood. I don't know if I know the passage where it says what Paul's education was. It was taught by you know, like, just his, his ability, he's able to speak to them kind of in their own, like he's coming at where, where they're at. Right, right. Um, and so what a, a, a number of authors have done with this passage is just point, um, you know, Paul doesn't say, now open your Old Testament scriptures to the book of Isaiah, and we'll be reading the 53rd chapter, and I want to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He did that in the synagogues. These Greeks don't have Old Testament scriptures. They don't have a biblical worldview. He has to start a lot farther back. And so he builds a bridge to make one of his points to say, <coughs> even one of your own philosophers says this. Um, doesn't mean their philosopher is, is on the same level of scripture, but he, it's just building a bridge with his audience to say, um, I'm familiar with your culture. Um, this isn't just me saying this. Even somebody of your own bunch has made this point, and I'm just going to build on that and, and expand on it to illustrate what I'm trying to say, that God isn't confined to a building. He's not made out of gold or silver or stone, um, because otherwise your poet would be off to say we're his offspring, because we're not stones and gold and silver. So there's something alive about us 
So God must be alive and not inanimate. But, um, yeah, you, you see touches of that in the New Testament. Um, Second Peter and Jude quote some rather unusual sources, uh, and it doesn't elevate those sources to the level of Scripture, it just says they're useful to make a point. Um, let's see, what do, I, what do I quote today? Oh, next week I'm going to quote Carl Sagan. Okay, I, don't, I think Carl Sagan is very off. <laughs> but he has a quote that really helps illustrate Christmas. So that's the same way Paul's using it. It's like, this is useful to make the point I want to make with it, but don't go saying, oh yeah, I just totally endorse Carl Sagan. He's like, he's my guy. <laughs> the way I think of that is maybe two degree, I don't know, that it's like a common grace. They have a little bit of understanding, yeah, but they don't, they don't common really grace, understand the whole picture. Common grace would be good. Yeah, and, he, and even the appeals of, in him we live and move and have our being, and he gives to all life, rest, and all things. That's common grace. He gives that to believers and unbelievers alike. Um, so yeah, common grace would be a good way to describe that. Right, we probably need to wrap it up. There is no Sunday school for any age group next Sunday, Christmas morning. There's morning worship at 10.30.